Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. Today we're discussing the article by Roz, Robert Nozick, a Harvard professor, entitled On the Randian Argument. It's an article he published in a minor philosophic journal called The Personalist in the early 70s, before he became, uh, I believe he published it before he became so well known. He became well known for writing Anarchy, State, and Utopia, the book that made laissez-faire capitalism intellectually respectable. Didn't help anyone understand it, but at least it was no longer possible to scream fascist when someone mentioned laissez-faire capitalism because here was a Harvard philosophy professor who was fairly well regarded. Now, where did he get his advocacy of laissez-faire from? Indirectly from Ayn Rand. Not only did he read, less, uh, uh, not only did he read Atlas Shrugged, but he had conversations with Bruce Goldberg who was very familiar with Ayn Rand and gave him the arguments, at least as I understand it. So he decided to write this article for a philosophical journal, really attacking in a polite way. What, was, what reason did he have for criticizing it? Well, you might think his reason would be it contradicts some truth. It's false, he might think, because so-and-so is the truth on ethics, and this goes against that. No. All right, you might think, I say no, because he didn't think that there was any truth on ethics. <clears throat> you might think he held the following. Well, we haven't found the right argument yet for basing morality on the facts of reality, but I'm writing it to shoot down this one because this is a false attempt. This one does not work. That's kind of one of the two reasons he lists, but listen to the first reason that he lists. What, this is how the article begins. What are the moral foundations of capitalism? Many supporters of capitalism, especially among the very young, and you have to be a little ticked off when he says the very young, you know, the naive, the, peep, the unthinking. Many supporters of capitalism, especially among you adolescents who don't know anything, think that these foundations have already been provided, indeed that we already possess in the writings of Ayn Rand a demonstration, a proof, a cogent argument, an establishment of a moral view from which capitalism can easily be justified. I have two reasons for wanting to closely examine the argument. One, some persons are not devoting thought to fundamental issues about morality, thinking that the essence of the job has already been done. Now you get that? 
Second one is the argument itself is an attempt to provide a non-utilitarian, non-social contract natural rights ethics. Since I share the view that such a moral foundation is appropriate and possible, that let's say fair capitalism is morally justifiable on such a basis, I'm not sure whether that means non-utilitarian, I think it does, non-social contract. I wish to look closely at an actual attempt. So the first thing is, these college freshmen are claiming voting thought to fundamental issues about philosophy. I got to stop that. I mean, what is the thought that people other than Ayn Rand were uh, devoting to fundamental issues in, about morality? None. Well, there, were, there is one guy, uh, Gettier, from the University of Chicago, but essentially even the philosophers were not giving any fundamental thought because they were all convinced by Hume that you cannot get from is to ought. So it's not like that, oh, the pages of philosophical journals are filled with thoughtful steps toward a solution uh, to the is-ought problem, the founding of morality and reason. But Ayn Rand does it too quickly and too amateurishly, and she's stopping some of these people who are doing work from proceeding and getting on. That's not what was going on. So it's just, as far as I can determine, that he didn't like the certainty of college freshmen and sophomores who he was teaching ethics to. They kept bringing up Ayn Rand and saying, well, she has a proof. What's the question? What's the problem? I can almost understand that. I can almost understand being irked by the smug certainty of a youngster. But it's not a motivation for writing an article. It's not a proper way to uh, proceed. So how does he proceed? Well, the next sentence is, I would most like to set out the arguments, the argument as a deductive argument and then examine the premises. And the Senate, and that's the big error. The sentence after that is unfortunately is not clear to me exactly what the argument is. Now, I've had several discussions on HBTV about why don't philosophers apply scholarship and logic and reason to understanding Ayn Rand. And here we have the only philosopher who would begin to attempt it in the 20th century, writing these freshmen and sophomores that I'm teaching are irritating because they think they got the answers and I'm going to show them that they don't because I'm going to set out the argument as a deductive argument. Unfortunately, I'm not clear exactly what it is. So I'm going to give you several possibilities, in effect, he says. Um, 
He says, quote, so we shall have to do some speculating about how steps might be filled in and look at these ways. It may be, of course, that I have overlooked some other ways which would make the argument work. If so, I presume someone else who claims to possess the um, and understand the demonstration will supply the missing material. Well, after I read this, that person was me. And I wrote him. I wrote him about a six-page letter, which you can find on the site. Check your premises. So I wrote Nozick a letter telling him what was wrong with um, his article and what the right answer was. Trying to stop that from annoying us. All right. And... He didn't answer, so after about three weeks or a month, I just called him up at Harvard. <clears throat> I just found out, you know, I got through the philosophy department and rung him up. And I must say, and I want to say in all justice, he was very nice. He was very open to uh, criticism. He uh, encouraged me to write an article present, uh, uh, you know, answering him. And in a way I did, because you know, about five or six years later, I wrote an article for the Monist uh, entitled Life-Based Teleology and the Foundation of Ethics. I got to write that because there was a guest editor, Douglas Rasmussen, who his whole life has been very sympathetic, not really an objectivist, but like next door. I think he's religious, but he has uh, he wanted me in there for my uh, presentation of my theory of goal-directed action and its application to the foundations of ethics. So I did go on and, um, and write something, uh, but he was very nice and... Um, understood the situation. He said, yeah, I have, I have your letter here on the pile of letters on my desk, the pile of things to read and answer. To be frank, I may die before I ever get to it. And I can understand that. You know, these things build up. It's like email is now in the sense that sometimes it's too much to get to, to go through. So uh, I have nothing but uh, kind thoughts about him as an individual, but him as a philosopher is it's something else. So you got the um, you got the uh, situation here. The situation is. He's going to bring in rigor and precision and logic and order and then analyze whether it works, whether the math is good, so to speak, or whether it fails. And, of course, it fails in his analysis. Now, let me just remind you what the actual presentation is. She says, the first question, and this is from memory, there's no need to, to read it, 
because I, uh, I have almost all the wording and uh, certainly the thought of it. The first question of ethics is not what values should men pursue, but what are values? Why does man need morality? What are values? Why does man need them? And she says the concept of value is not a primary. Well, first she gives a, a kind of neutral generic definition. A value is that which one acts to gain and or keep. So in other words, it's something that an organism, a really human being, goes after. He's seeking something, he has a purpose, and the thing he is striving for is his end, his goal, his value, his purpose. That's what gives rise to the issue, to the question. And she says the concept of value is not a primary. It depends upon the answers of value to whom and for what. Now, right away, at least now we've gotten into the uh, area of Aristotelian ethics. Because she's saying a value serves a higher value. That's the for what. If you want to get to the grocery store, it's in order to buy some groceries. You don't want to get to the grocery store and that's it. You want to get to the grocery store, it's a value, it's a goal, because there's a for what. And it's a for what for you. You're not going to the grocery store to change the distribution of human weight on the planet to shift it a little bit away from your home. You're not going to the grocery store in order to provide income for the grocer. You're going to the grocery store because you want something to get for you. So the concept of value is not a primary, it depends upon an answer to the questions of value to whom the person acting and for what some higher value. It presupposes an entity capable of generating action in the face of an alternative. What does that mean? What does it mean to generate action in terms of an alternative? It means that it's got to make a difference to you whether you get your goal or don't. And in a minute, she, she gives the killer example of why, of how we can see that's true. <clears throat> so there has to be something to be gained or lost in the action if you are saying it makes a difference whether this action is performed, makes a difference to me. I'm performing it because I want something. If you want it, then it has to be that you are frustrated and disappointed and can't go on to some at least small extent without it. You want to eat. You want to get the groceries so you can take them home, so you can cook them, so that you can eat, so that you can live. And partly so you can enjoy your life. It's good groceries. 
So values exist in a hierarchy and there has to be an alternative. So what is the base of that hierarchy? She says the fundamental alternative is existence or non-existence and it pertains to a single class of entities, to living organisms. The life of an organism is conditional upon its action. If it doesn't act, it won't survive. That's, now I'm paraphrasing and, and giving my own in, uh, analysis or interpretation. That's the ultimate for what that makes all the other for what's be values. That this thing keeps you in existence, like you eat to stay in existence. You can go out of existence. Without that, the values are indistinguishable from regular cause-effect sequences. Now this is me, but I just want to, I think it's implicit in what she holds because she gives this example. Imagine there's an immortal, indestructible robot, she says, an entity that moves and acts, but cannot be affected by anything, cannot be changed, damaged, altered in any way. So it's invulnerable, it's impervious, it walks around and does things, but it cannot be changed. Now that change includes a camp, there's no such thing for a robot as happy or sad or delighted or pleased or hurt or, because those things are a biological entities, organisms reaction in the face of the alternative of its life or death. That's why we have pleasure and pain because we face the alternative of life versus death. That's why it evolved. If you doubt that, just picture what would happen if an organism didn't have any pleasure or pain. So imagine a kitten, let's say, is born, nothing hurts it, nothing feels good to it, it wouldn't do anything. It would have no incentive, no motivation to do anything. Doesn't get hungry. So. Part of the non-change in the robot is it isn't affected psychologically, so to speak, or existentially. It has no psychology. It's not conscious. It's a machine. So don't sneak in, you know, uh, emotional stakes to the robot. The idea is it doesn't have any. And I'll explain why it is in a second. Now, if the robot doesn't have any um, alternative that it faces, nothing's different for it, it could perform certain actions that would mimic goal-directed actions. You know, like a beaver, it could start, it could be programmed to start damming up streams. Uh, you could imagine that like a, sp like a bird, it builds something like a nest, but it doesn't make any difference to it what it does. It could turn around and undam the streams. It could smash or burn its nest that it built. It would, neither way does it make any difference. So you obviously can't say, well, the robot has goals. The robot has values in what it does. It just does things like rain. Rain doesn't try to get to the ground. 
raindrops aren't saying, oh, I can't wait till we strike the earth and make it wet. Raindrops falling is cause and effect. As the philosopher Carl Hempel pointed out, even organic bodily activities have effects that aren't goal-directed, aren't what's called teleological effects. His example is a pretty good one. Your heartbeat makes thumping sounds. But that's not why it beats. It's function. The reason why it beeps is to circulate your blood. If you're walking on the beach, you're leaving footprints. But that's not why you're walking. You're not walking to make footprints. When you exhale much to the horror of the climate catastrophist, you're exhaling carbon dioxide, but that's not why you're breathing. It's to get the oxygen, not to make more carbon dioxide be in the air. So uh, I think that shows the to whom and for what and the alternative. What the robot does might make a difference to other organisms who do face alternatives. It might damming up the stream might hurt salmon. Clearing the screen might stream might help salmon, but it's nothing to the robot. And since it's nothing to the robot, there's no difference for it in what it's programmed to do. And it also shows the for what. There's no to whom and there's no for what. And the reason there's no for what, for the agent, for the robot, for the moving thing, there's no uh, for what for it, maybe for the salmon or maybe for the environment, but not for the agent, the thing that acts. The, um, the reason why it makes no difference is that we set it up that nothing makes a difference. We wanted an example, an imaginary impossible example, of something that moves and acts but has no alternative that it faces. The results will be the same for it. And you could not form a concept of goal-directed action for robots. And you can't extend our concept to robots of um, our human concept of purposes and caring and seeking and striving and valuing and fulfilling needs and so forth. None of that applies to rainfall or to robots or to the planetary motions. Aside from the effect, aside from the situation of a living organism doing things to keep itself alive and all that that implies, there's no way to distinguish among pure cause and effect, like the heartbeat making a thump, and a goal, like the heartbeat having the goal of circulating the blood or you having a goal to get to the grocery store. And a value is just a you know, bigger goal. A goal is a small, immediate value that's very concrete. 
a value she defines as that which one acts to gain and or keep. And so is the goal. They're really the same concept, except that value is more general and more abstract for the same phenomenon. So that's what it is. Now, what does Nozick analyze the argument to be? He says, as I see it, there are four parts to the argument. One, the part to the argument that, that gets to the conclusion that only living beings have values with a point. Only living beings have values with a point. A point to whom? For what? That's not in Ayn Rand. That doesn't make any sense. Next one. From one, that's the preceding one he calls one, to the conclusion that life itself is a value to a living being which has it. Rather ungrammatical. Life itself is a value to a living being which has it. Well, not necessarily. Human beings don't have to value their lives. Three, from two, to the conclusion that life as a rational person is a value to the person whose life it is. No, that's, you just went from floor two, or what you see as floor two, to floor 16, without the intermediate steps. Four, from three, to some principle about interpersonal behavior and rights and purposes. I shall examine each of these in turn. Now, we're only going to examine the first one because that tells the whole story. The first one is the, he wants to see how she gets to the conclusion only living beings have values with a point. Now, she's pretty damn clear. One might even say pellucidly clear about what the argument is. And the secondary literature emphasizes it. The key step is it is only the concept of life that makes the concept of value possible. In other words, to be a value is to be that which serves the life of the agent. That's the conclusion. Not only living beings have values with a point. Not even only living beings have values. It's that to be a value is to serve life. All right, so he has one. Only a living being is capable of choosing among alternative actions. Where does that come from? Nowhere. Or only for a living being could there be any point to choosing among alternative actions. Four, three. Only a living being can be injured, damaged, have its welfare diminished, etc. Well, that's closer to it, at least. And four, any rational preference pattern will be connected with the things mentioned in three. And since five, values establish a, parenthesis, rational preference ordering among alternative actions, it follows that six, only a living being can have values with some point to them. Values have a purpose only for living things. And then he quotes the immortal robot example, amazingly. Well, he was right. He doesn't get it. And why does he put it in terminology that she doesn't use? Why does she talk about rational preference ordering or preference pattern? 
or values with a point. Uh, choosing among alternatives is not the point. It's facing alternatives that's the point. Plants don't choose, but they face an alternative, and there are things that are good for a plant and bad for a plant. Water is good for it and up to a certain point, and then too much water is bad for it. So why can't he just, you know, I mean, do it honestly or, or professionally. If he were writing on Plato's argument or Kant's argument or Hume's argument, he wouldn't start, I hope, putting in alien terminology and saying, gee, it doesn't go, doesn't work. Now, there's one other thing I wanted to... Uh, another aspect of the argument, I'm not going to go through the whole thing because I, I will just name in a second the fundamental. Consider the following argument, which is a sub-argument, he thinks. Having values is itself a value. No. A necessary condition for a value is a value, sort of. Life is a necessary condition for having values, therefore life is itself a value. Now that, that's not an argument. That's like, that's Kantian. That's like saying, let me change it to a Kantian version. There ought to be a morality. Whatever is required for there to be a morality is morally important. <clears throat> a sense of duty is required in order for there to be a morality. Therefore, a sense of duty is important. That's the kind of argument Kant gives as to why we have duties. Anything else would be subjective, he says, and if it's subjective, it's not a real morality. So we've got to have a real morality. Why? Blank out. And to have it, there must be duty, not some selfish, subjective, personal thing, but an absolute rule. And that's why we have absolute rules. Or to parry that a little further, we want prayer to work. The only way that prayer will work is if God exists. Therefore, God exists. Having values is itself a value. A necessary condition for a value is value. Now, he asks, but is too true? No, that's not the problem. But look at what he says. Two is a necessary condition for a value is a value. Are all necessary conditions for values, values themselves? Now, you could see, well, I have to get my degree in order to get a good job. I value getting a good job, so since my college degree is necessary for that, I want to get a degree. It's a value. <clears throat> he says, are all necessary conditions for values values? Take, he says, if getting cured of cancer is a value, is getting cancer? which is a necessary condition for getting cured of it, 
or having, say, a particular virus act on one of value? Is the, the technical answer to that is, oh, come off it. You get the argument? This is his criticism for smug freshmen, right, who think they read Ayn Rand, agree with it, and think they know something. Are all necessary conditions for values values? Well, you can't be cured of cancer unless you first get cancer. So do you want to say getting cancer is good? Now, if you want to spend a second or two answering that, uh, I will briefly. Getting cured of cancer is a value if you have cancer. It isn't like, oh, you know, I want to get cured for cancer. I don't have cancer, but I want to be cured of it. That's good. How do, how do I go of it? Well, first I have to get cancer. So I'm going to want to see what I can do to get cancer, because then I can be cured of cancer. Cure of cancer is a removal of a negative. If you don't have a negative, you don't have to remove it. It's just stupid. I'm glad I said he's a nice guy because I get a little angry at this. This this C is serious philosophy. Are all necessary conditions from values values? Getting cured of cancer as is a necessary condition, getting cancer. So are you saying that's a value? And notice it has nothing to do with Ayn Rand's argument. It's, you know, he makes up a statement and then he makes up an argument that supports that statement and then he says but does that always apply what about getting cured of cancer all right the big problem is his methodology and it comes in that first sentence the first contentful sentence where he says i would most like to set out the argument as a deductive argument. It's not a deductive argument. Hume was right. You cannot deduce one field of knowledge from another. You can't deduce tapioca from premises that don't already have the term tapioca in it. You can't deduce the weather from non-meteorological premises and we don't deduce knowledge as a means of acquiring knowledge except for application of knowledge the the role of deduction is to apply knowledge already possessed it makes explicit what is implicit in what you already know so induction and in particular Concept formation is the basis of the proof of the ethics. Ayn Rand says the concept of value is not a primary. What are values? What do they exist to conceptualize? They exist to conceptualize something specific. An organism that's trying to do something because it needs to get the results to use to keep it alive. It has needs, conditions of existence that it requires for its survival. That's why the heartbeat 
has as its function circulating the blood and not making a sound. So the actual proof is not, well, there's premise one, there's premise two, there's conclusion one from one and two, and then we apply two to three. three. We got what's called a sorites, a chain of syllogisms. No, it's not a chain of syllogism, nor is physics a chain of syllogism, nor is biology, nor is medicine nor is anything other than the application of old knowledge to new conditions or new concretes with old conditions. So this is what we're up against. It's a methodological narrowness. It's a methodological paralysis around analysis, analysis paralysis. And with that comparison of how Ayn Rand proceeds to show something about real phenomena and reality and how Nozick proceeds, that one of the better contemporary, and by contemporary I mean 20th century, philosophers, let me conclude, thank you for your time this week. I haven't decided on next week's topic, but. We'll let you know shortly. Goodbye.